want to welcome all of our, uh, our online viewers, uh, as well as everyone at our other locations. We're glad that you guys are with us as well. We're kind of wrapping up a, uh, a series that we've been in in the Gospel of Luke, even though we're only in chapter 15. And some of you are wondering, well, what's going on? Why aren't we finishing this? Uh, we will, Lord willing, next January, we'll jump back into Luke. Next week, we're going to fast forward to you know what? Uh, the Easter story, the resurrection story in uh, Luke chapter 24. Uh, so we will touch on that, but the plan is to start a, a new series, and uh, we'll tell you more about that this week and, and, and next week as well. Uh, but we're going to be in Luke chapter 15, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 15, or you can just follow along on the screen. Um, I was thinking back to uh, last week, our campus pastor's sermons. <clears throat> They did a great job. They kind of gave me a preview of what they were going to do. Obviously, I couldn't be in five different places at once to hear them all, but um, they were telling me the premise of their, their, their sermons and where they were going, and obviously, they preached on, if you were here, the parable of the lost sheep, remember that, and the, and the lost coin. Uh, some of the pastors got to that part of the story as well. And in both of those stories, there's something lost, and someone goes after something that's lost, that's of value. When they find the thing that's of value, what do they do? Celebrate, right? There's a party. People are smiling. So the shepherd finds the sheep. He picks up the sheep and puts it on his shoulders, and there's rejoicing. The woman lights a lamp, sweeps the floor, finds the coin, and there's rejoicing. So I don't know if uh, God thought I needed another sermon illustration. Surely I did not, especially about my um, dumb, I mean, cute dog, D-O-G, it seems like every time I preach on this particular passage, he gets put into the sermon. But let me tell you what happened. I, I came home one day this past week, and the house was unusually quiet. <clears throat> Usually the kids are kind of running about, um, but, but more than that, the dog always greets me at the door. The kids don't anymore, but the dog does. And uh, there's no dog at the door, and I kind of go in and greet Erin, and she's cooking dinner, and still no D.O.G., I don't see Dioji, and I ask Erin after a few minutes, like, where's Dioji? And she immediately looks out the window, the back window to our, our backyard, and she does not see Dioji. He's gone. She had put him on a leash, and his leash is there with the, the chain, but no Dioji. Somehow, some way, this dog found a way to escape, and so he's gone. Keep in mind, 30 minutes have passed since he was last seen by, by Aaron. And so my attitude is not get my shoes, get my coat, you know, get the keys and head out. I literally just give up. 30 minutes, are you kidding me? He's probably back in Wellsville by now at his home. And, and so I had this attitude of like, I've searched for him so many times, I am done. I'm done. I start doing the dishes. And Aaron leaves and, you know, comes back in. And then I get this nudge to tell me maybe I should... We'll look for him. So I grab the keys, and I'm driving around Rochester, big place, and no DOG. I'm calling the dog pound person, whatever, whatever that name is, and Aaron calls him. We leave a message, and finally he calls back. They found DOG. I go drive to where this place is in Greece, and I pull up to this van. Like, the store's not open. There's just a van in the parking lot. It's dark. It's weird. And he, he opens up the door, and there's D.O.G. And I can tell you, 
I did not smile. I did not grab him and put him on my shoulders. I may have lost a little bit of my sanctification on the way to look for him. There was no party when we got home. We did not celebrate with cake in the Gorham household that night. In fact, we didn't talk to DOG. We just went to bed. You're done. You're dead to us. So frustrating. That is not the heart of the father that we see in Luke chapter 15. There's celebration. There's rejoicing. And we're going to see a picture of the heart of God in this parable, just like we saw last week. But more than just the heart of God, we're going to see a picture of ourselves, of who we are alienated from God and what God calls us to do in order to be found. So again, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and um, open up to Luke 15. It's a longer passage. I invite um, one of our elders here at our Arcade Campus, Dave Barber, to come up and read this passage of Scripture. And there's a few reasons why I asked Dave to, to read this passage of Scripture. I, I kind of gave you two of them uh, last night when I texted you, Dave. One is because I love you. I really value our partnership in the gospel, uh, not only Dave, but all of our elders and, and Pastor Stu here. I love what God is doing here at the Arcade Campus. Uh, two, I believe in the model of ministry that we do, that we're better together. We say that a lot of times we're stronger together, and so this is, you know, I can, read my, I can read myself, but I think this is a good picture of us being stronger together. And, and three, here's the real motive. I'm just joking, but this is, they say I preach long, and this is a long passage, so I figure if I get someone else to read the passage, that doesn't count towards my sermon time. So, you can blame it on me. You can blame it on you. I'll, I'll take that for you, Pastor. No, that's not the real reason, but go ahead. <laughs> so beginning in, in uh, chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now we're going to drop down to verse 11. And he said there was a man who had two sons, and the youngest of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, many, not many days later, the youngest son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. Sorry. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came to draw near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. 
And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he refused and was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you believe that was <laughs> You killed the fattened calf for him, and he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Thank you, Dave. Lord, bless your word. There's so much in here. We can't even do it justice, but you do have something for your people, and we ask, Lord, that you would speak through your living and active word, and may it change us to know who you are and what you've called us to do. In Jesus' name we ask this, amen. Wow. Uh, There's like 20-something verses there, and only got a few minutes to share with you really the picture of the heart of, of God, and that's what this story is really about. It's about it's about God, it's about the Father in this story, and yet oftentimes this story is approached as if the son, the younger son, is the star of the story. After all, it's usually referred to as the parable of the what? The prodigal son. And yet, how many sons are in this story? There's actually two sons in this story, and what we're actually going to see, there's two things that we're going to see in this passage as we kind of look through it. One, the, the heart of God towards sinners and how he pursues them, how he initiates the, 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 the relationship. The other thing that we're going to see is that there's really two ways to approach God that leave yourself alienated from God. And those views are seen in the younger son as well as in the older son. So it's really not the, the parable of the prodigal son. That's really not what the, the Lord Jesus Christ uh, referred to this story as. That's just added in there. This story is about the two lost sons who were alienated from the father. And so we've got to look at this in two parts. The first part we'll look at with regards to the younger son. The younger son uh, one day goes to his father, as Dave just read, and he says, give me. Your kids ever say that to you? Oh, I hate that. Give me, give me, or they say to their brothers, right? Give me, give me, and, and that's the way it was intended to be read. It's a, it's a sense of disrespect where he goes to his father and he says, I want my share of the inheritance. Um, the way that worked in that day is that the, the, older son, the older son would get the lion's share of the inheritance, and if there was only two heirs, two sons, uh, the older son would get two-thirds of the inheritance while the younger son would get a third of the inheritance, and so he's going to his dad early because you don't get the inheritance usually until someone dies. And he's saying, give me what is mine. And the way that would have been translated in that culture would have been very disrespectful. The way that Jewish readers would have listened to this story would have, would have heard it said like, dad, I, I don't care about you. I just want your stuff. And that's intended in this story that Jesus is trying to help us understand that this son wanted the things that the father could give him, but did not want the father himself. And to ask for the inheritance before the dad died was essentially the same as saying, Dad, I want you dead. Very disrespectful. And he asked him for his property. The word, the word property there in the original language is, is the word bios, which you kind of infer it just means life. And in that culture, 
They didn't have bank accounts. Their money, their wealth, their, their status in society was seen in the land that they owned. And so for his son to ask him for his property was literally essentially saying, Dad, I want you to take your life, take your land, and to divide it up. Tear your life apart for me. Now, if you were a dad, right, even if you're not a dad, you can imagine. If you were a dad and your son comes to you and says, Dad, I don't care about you. I want you dead. I just want your stuff. Take your life and literally tear it apart and give me my possessions. How would you respond? How do you respond with other people when they come to you and say something rude? You're nice all the time, right? You're polite and kind and compassionate, right? Of course you are. Not. You would probably do something similar to what I would do and just respond with being harsh. Right? But that's not what the father does. What does the father immediately do? He immediately gives the son what he asks for. There's a picture there that I think Jesus wants us to see. The first is that God will allow us the choice to live in our sin if we so choose. If, if we're hell-bent on saying that this is how I want to live and this is the pleasures I want to pursue and this is how I want to live my life, God will hand us over. In Romans chapter 1, it says that God gave them over to their debased minds. He'll let you do that. And you can probably have a little bit of fun for a little bit of time, but at the end of the day, that's going to land you in the same place that it landed this younger son, which was rock bottom for him. The other thing that you see in this passage early on is that the son never gives up on, or the, the father never gives up on the younger son. What would have been custom in that culture would be for the, the father to literally cut off. There was actually a ceremony where if someone choose, chose to live outside the family rules or to disrespect the, the patriarchal father, they would literally be cut off from the family. Sometimes they would have a ceremony, like a funeral, where that son would die, and they would be done with that. In that culture, it would be expected for them to be driven out of the home, to maybe even be physically abused because of their disrespect. And the father doesn't do any of that. He maintains his love for his son, and he patiently endures the loss of that relationship, and he hands over the property. We don't know how it goes, but some way or another, this, this younger son liquidates the property into cash so that he can go off to a far land, and it doesn't take him long to go through all the money. There's a famine, he's in need, and it says that he finds himself in a pig pen. The lowest of lows for a Jewish man to find himself not only feeding pigs, but actually eating with the pigs. This is as low as it possibly can get. And yet, at this point in the story, he comes up with a plan. And what is his plan? To go back home. To admit to his father that he's messed up, that he's made a mess of his life, and then he was going to make restitution. In other words, he was going to pay back his father for the money that he wasted. Which, by the way, the word prodigal literally means to be recklessly spendthrift. It means to be recklessly extravagant with how you waste something. That's why it was given the term prodigal in that, in that category. So his, his plan, first and foremost, is to confess what he's done wrong to his dad, but he doesn't, he doesn't think that he can come back home as a son with his dad in their home. 
And we know that because of the plan says that he, he, he was wanting to become like a hired man. That's what Dave just read. That his plan was to become like a hired man. And, and the people listening to this story, as we read in verses 1 and 2, would have been looking at this story, especially the, the Pharisees and the scribes, and then have been like, yeah, amen to that. That's what, he sh- that's what he should do. He should make restitution for all the wrong that he's done. He needs to pay back. And so what did hired men do? They would use their, their, their skills, their, their tradesmen capability, and they would, they would get a job and they would earn a wage. And then that younger son would take the, the wage that he earns, the paycheck that he earns, and he would pay back his father until that relationship was made right. So he sets off. He's rehearsing this speech. I've I've messed up. I've sinned against heaven and, and, and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He has no expectation at this point in the story to actually be welcomed back into the home as a son. He fully expects to have to make restitution for his sin, just like everybody else would assume listening to the story. And is that what happens? He goes back home, and his father sees him a long way off, and the Bible says that he responds with compassion. The word there is, is actually denoting something inside your inner being that causes you to react. Something in your gut that causes you to react. I want you to know today, church, that the default posture towards sinners like you and me is not to condemn. It's not to throw away or disregard. It's to love. He moves towards his son in love and compassion and he runs, the Bible says, which would have been very undignified for a father to do in that society. Um, I don't want to illustrate it too much here for you, but imagine I'm wearing a robe, not jeans. That's what they would wear during that time. They would have to wear a robe. In order to run in a robe, guys, I don't know if you've ever tried this before, but in order to run in a robe, what do you have to do? You've got to hike that robe up, right? Exposing your manly legs, you know? Very embarrassing. Dignified fathers would not do such a thing, but he runs. This father is different. That's what Jesus wants you to understand. This father is different than any father you could ever imagine in this story. The Pharisees would have no category for this type of father. And the father, before, this is key, before the younger son ever has a chance to finish his rehearsed speech, the father calls his servant over and says, quickly, bring quickly my best robe. And keep in mind, this man has not taken a shower yet. Where has he just been? In the pig pen. And the father is going to take the best robe, which, by the way, whose robe would that have been? The father's robe. The best robe in the house was the father's robe, and the father chooses to put on his son to cover his nakedness, his shame, his stench, the robes of the Father. Is that not a picture of grace, church? That's a picture of what Jesus has done for us. The man, Jesus, the God Jesus, who deserved the robes of righteousness was stripped from them so that you and I could be clothed with his righteousness. That's a picture of grace. Grace is essentially unmerited favor. It's where we deserve one thing, but God responds in another way. It's where we deserve punishment, which is what this younger son deserved. It's where we deserve to be able to make restitution and pay back the wrongs that we did. And God responds with gifts. The gifts were the robe, the ring, sandals, which, by the way, the the ring was a signet ring. It wasn't just any type of ring. It was a, a sign of authority. 
It's a sign that you're actually a son in this family. You have the namesake of this family. And he gave him shoes, sandals, which only, only people in the family would have them. Slaves wouldn't have shoes. Um, servants wouldn't have sandals. They would be barefoot in that culture. So it's all, all gifts to communicate to this son that while your plan was to pay me back, I'm just going to simply bring you back. I'm going to bring you back into this family regardless of whether you think you're worthy or not. That is a picture of what Jesus has done for us, welcoming us into his family. Amen, church? This is a beautiful picture. And then the tension in the story. Everything's good up until this point. And typically when people read this story, it's very sentimental, right? It's like, wow, it's inspirational. People cry over this story. There's this inspirational rally cry to go after the lost and be like Jesus. And, but yet what we, what we miss when we have that when we have that view of the story only is the purpose of the story originally. The purpose of this story was not to get people emotionally moved, crying in tears. It was actually in response to what Dave read earlier in verses 1 and 2. Let me read to you again verses 1 and 2. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near. By the way, who, was the, who were the people that were mostly attracted to Jesus? Was it the religious folks? No. In fact, all throughout the, the Gospel of Luke, you see this contrast. You see these sexual outcast people and the religious people together. And who is drawn to Jesus? It's not the religious people. It's the sexual outcasts. You see the political outcasts later in, in Luke and the religious people near him. And who is drawn to Jesus? It's not, the, it's not the religious folks. It's the political outcasts. Over and over again, you see that in Scripture, this contrast of who is actually attracted to Jesus because of the grace that he shows to people. And so you see the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near, and who else was with them? The Pharisees and the scribes, and they were grumbling. And the reason why they were grumbling was because of the type of people that Jesus was hanging out with. And when they looked at Jesus and saw the type of people that he was hanging out with, it just justified their belief that everything that he was doing, remember the, the, the healings and the miracles, he was doing it by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of Satan. Because if Jesus is hanging around with sinners, he's hanging around with Satan's people, and that just proves their point. They are upset. They are furious. And so Jesus tells them this parable in response to their grumbling. And so if you don't keep reading after this younger son is restored to the father, you kind of miss the whole point of the parable. And again, the tension of the parable is centered around where, uh, where we read about this fattened calf. Which I, read, um, I read somewhere this, this week that someone said that it was the elder brother who had the worst day uh, in this story. Actually, I would disagree. It's probably the fattened calf. It's not a good day for the fattened calf. <laughs> He gets killed, and the reason why he gets killed is because there's a party, there's something to, to celebrate here, which would have been very rare to do. Um, in that culture, you didn't have a lot of meat. I can't remember the meal, a meal where I didn't have meat. Like, we have meat almost every single meal that we eat, right? We love our meat. In that culture, you didn't have a lot of meat because it was very expensive, especially the fattened calf. It would only be brought out and killed in the most rare of occasions for the most big festivities for what the father wants to celebrate. And so in one sense, this is the best day of the father's life, but for the elder brother, it's the worst day. And the reason why it's the worst day, you got to catch this in this story, is because now that the younger brother is out of the picture, who owns the entire estate? 
Who is going to be given everything that the father owns? It's the older brother. And that includes that fattened calf and that robe, that ring, those shoes. The only way that the younger brother can be welcomed back into the family is at the expense of the older brother. Certainly the father. But when it says, later on in the passage, the father goes out to the older son, he says, son, everything that I have is yours. Everything that I have is yours. And that's the problem for the older brother. He was so consumed and furious about what it was costing him. That's my robe. Those are my rings. Those are my sandals. And that's my fattened calf. One of the, the, the big idea in this passage that I'm seeing is this, that we need to understand that while forgiveness is free, God's grace is always very costly. You understand that? Forgiveness is always free for the person receiving forgiveness, but that does not mean that forgiveness did not cost someone something of great value. And that's what Jesus really wants us to see with this elder brother. He was just as lost as the younger brother. Their lostness looks different, right? Just like our lostness in sin looks different, but he was still alienated from God. The younger brother is obvious. When we think of sin, typically, what do we think of? We think of like, you know, the, the word that Dave bleeped out, right? Prostitution or, or um, recklessly spending on entertainment or um, being disrespectful like the younger son did. It's this wild, reckless living. We think of sin in those terms, do we not? When we think of sin, it's sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It's, it's the world's way. But yet what we're seeing in this story is that there's another way to be alienated from God that looks much different than the sinners and tax collectors, the younger brother. It looks a whole lot more like the older brother who is the Pharisees and the scribes in this story. Isn't that genius of Jesus? They think up until the first part of the story that the parable is all about these sinners and tax collectors. And then all of a sudden on a dime, the story changes and he puts them front and center and says, you are just as lost as your younger brother. Which, by the way, where is the older brother at this point? Is he in the, in the house? Is he in, in the party? Is he in the feast or is he out in the field? The ironic thing about this story is that the lover of prostitutes gets saved and reconciled to the father and the moral person is still on the outskirts of being in a relationship with his father. He's upset. He's furious. He's trying to control God to get what he wants. There's a similarity between the younger son and the older son. Both want what the father has, but neither of them want the father. They just go about it different ways. The younger son decides, I'm going to get what the father has by, by doing what I want to do. I get to decide what I want to do. I, I get to decide who's the king and lord of my own life. Thank you very much. I want my independency. I don't want the authority over me. I want me, myself, and I at the center of my life. I've heard it said before that the way you understand sin is by looking at how it's spelled. I is in the middle of the words S or the letters S and N. It's when we put I at the center of our life that we fall into sin. Sin is essentially believing that we exist for anything but the glory of God. And when you think that you exist for anything but the glory of God, you've totally missed why God created you in the first place. So that's obvious. 
But the older brother's sin is not so obvious. He had the same heart as the younger brother. He wanted the father's things, but did not want the father himself. His way of about going about it is not by being bad. It's by actually being very, very good. Don't miss that in this story. The thing that made him alienated from his father out in the field was not that he didn't comply with the rules. It's that he obeyed all the rules. But that didn't make him in right relationship with the father. In fact, it made him outside of a relationship with the father because of the very reason why he was doing those good things in the first place. The only reason that elder brother complied with all the father's rules was to get what the dad had. That's self-righteousness. And so in this parable, we see, yes, we need to repent of sin, but we also need to repent of the very reasons for why we do good in the first place. If our only motivation is to do good to get something from God, that's also sin. And you're lost. That's probably more of a warning for church people, don't you think? Um, my guess is most of you, 99% of you, probably were not out partying at the club last night, right? Probably had a quiet night in front of your television, watching the Hallmark Channel, everything's holy and, you know, right? But where we fall into sin is our approach to God, where we believe that our goodness has something to do with us being in right relationship with him. And here's why that matters, church. This is... This is why this is so important. If your view on God is to approach him based on the good that you do, and you think you deserve God to answer your prayers because of how you live, you went to church today, don't you get some brownie points today, right? You prayed some prayers. Maybe you'll go to small group this week. You obey the Ten Commandments. You do what the Bible asks. If you approach God thinking that God needs to do something for you, like a goat that God can give you to have a party with your friends, like a prayer request that God can answer because you've lived a certain way, you know what that's going to lead you to? The day that God does not answer that prayer, you will be very disillusioned. You will become very bitter and perhaps angry at God because he didn't do for you what you wanted him to do. The opposite could also happen. You could be a little bit not sure. Maybe you don't have confidence that you're living the life that God wants you to live. Maybe you've wandered. Maybe you're not following all the areas of, of what the Bible says. Maybe you've kind of slipped up and gone a little bit wayward. But yeah, you're praying for God to move in your life and answer this particular prayer and to move in that person's life and to, to provide for you in, in certain ways. But yet you're just not sure of the Father's love for you. And so when God does not answer your prayer, who do you get mad at? You don't get mad at God because you're the one that messed up. You get mad at yourself. And you fail to realize that the Father's put that robe on you, that ring on you, those sandals on you. And so you begin to like go between this idea of, you know, woe is me versus I'm mad at God. And that's such an unhealthy place. And it's exactly what alienated this son from his father. Church. This is where we need to understand the heart of the Father towards lost sinners. The thing that makes us lost is our motivation for why we obey in the first place. 
We're not like the older brothers. Some of, some of us might be a little bit older brother-ish, you know? We get angry at God. We get bitter when he doesn't move or we loathe ourselves. Or you might take the approach where you're more, you're better than other people because your sin is not, you know, exposed out in public, but you have your own sin hidden beneath your layers of goodness. And so you look down at other people who struggle with different sins in you. There's this level of superiority. Or perhaps you're like the older brother because you have this, you know, kind of like a joyless compliance to what God is asking you to do, which less, just leads to judgmentalism and, and just kind of this blah attitude. There's no joy in how you approach God. That is not what God wants. As Christians, we're different in that regard. We're different in the sense of what motivates us to worship and to obey God. The reason why we worship and obey God is not to get something from God. It's not to get the fattened calf, and it's not to get the answered prayer. It's just to get God. It's one of our values. God is the, help me out if you know, God is the goal. God is the goal. And when you make God your goal, you'll be all right with anything that you get because you know it's unmerited grace and favor. Um, I heard this uh, great illustration this past week um, of a gardener who had this garden who uh, they cultivated uh, carrots and so he was in this kingdom it's made up stories in this kingdom and the king he goes to see the king and he thinks hey i know i'll bring him my best carrot my biggest carrot my my brightest carrot the, the just the most healthiest carrot he brings it to the king as a way to show gratitude to the king to say thank you king i trust you i love you i respect you i adore you and the king discerning the gardener's heart stops him on his way out and he says wait 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 I want to give you this plot of land, this whole big land that you can cultivate and you can use as a garden. And he's blown away. The gardener's blown away by the generosity of this king. Can't believe it. Well, there's another guy who overhears this story who raises horses, okay? And he's got this really big stallion, this beautiful horse, right? And he thinks, well, hey, if this guy got a whole plot of land for a measly carrot, what can I get with a big horse? So he brings the horse to the king. He says, King, oh, King, I love you, I serve you, and I brought this horse for you. And the, it, the illustration goes like this. The king, discerning the man's heart, said thank you and let him leave. And the guy was like, what? what's going on here? Confused. Has no idea why the king isn't giving him more as a result of what he just gave him when he compares it to what this gardener gave in, in the carrot. And so the king replies to him and says, the gardener was giving me a carrot. You were giving yourself the horse. How are you approaching God? Are you approaching him just to get something for your own life? Or are you truly desiring to be with the Father, knowing that he loves you, accepts you, and the only reasonable act is to give your life in worship? There's a picture here that God wants us to understand about his heart. There's a picture here of the type of people that we can become outside of a relationship with God that Jesus is warning us about. And there's a calling to himself that is seen in us understanding what it costs this father, particularly what it costs the son. You know what I find so interesting about this parable is, again, we look back to last week, Pastor Stu preached, all the other pastors preached about this parable. 
is that it comes in the context of two other parables that I told you about earlier. There's someone searching after something of great value. That's the key in the first two parables. Someone is searching for something of great value. Do you notice anything missing in this last parable? This is the third of the the three sets of parables. There's no one searching. No one goes out and searches for this son. That's weird, isn't it? In fact, Jesus just kind of ends the story. This son of mine was dead, but now is alive. He was lost and is found and that's it. You don't even read, you don't even know what happened. For all we know, if this was a true story, this older son is still out in the field. He never gets reconciled to the father. And there's a point to that that I think Jesus is making. He's, he's getting the listeners who are again, who, who's the listeners? The Pharisees and the, the scribes, right? He's getting the listeners to ask the question. He's he's getting the listeners to think, what's missing in this story? He's getting the listeners to see themselves in this story. And in that culture, you know who would have been out looking and sacrificing for their younger, for the younger son? It would have been the older brother. A good older brother would have went out and searched, even if it cost him something. And I think one of the reasons why Jesus does that is to draw our attention to himself. There's someone missing in the story, and the person that's missing from this story is a better brother. It stinks for this younger son that he gets a Pharisee, but you and I don't get a Pharisee. We get Jesus. We get Jesus, who searched for us, who when he found us, clothed our nakedness, clothed our stench, clothed our sin, put a ring on our finger, sandals on our feet, and welcomes us into the family of God. This parable is like calling us to to long for something, to look for something, to see Jesus and to long for heaven because it's real and it's going to be great. It's literally going to be like a feast. Tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and outcasts get in. But the moral, the people who are trying to justify themselves will never get into the kingdom of God. You can do life your way or you can receive grace and be giving gifts, and long for home. Um, this past week, I promise I'm almost done. This past week, uh, if, you, if you're friends with my wife on Facebook, you may have seen this post. I wish I had a picture with me, but we were watching um, Star Wars. It was episode one, not the original Star Wars back in the 70s, but the remake, the, the, the horrible movies. But the episode one, it's where little Anakin, remember the pod racing scene, and so they, their ship is broke down, uh, Qui-Gon and, and Obi-Wan, they're trying to find a part, and that's where they run into little Anakin Skywalker, who eventually becomes Darth Vader, so don't take this illustration too far, okay? Don't read into it. But little Anakin is helping Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan. He brings them to their house because of a sandstorm, and Qui-Gon senses that there's something different about Anakin, that he could be a future Jedi one day. And so through this pod racing you know, race that they, they do, little Anakin earns his freedom, but the mother is still in slavery. And so there's, there's this really touching scene at, the, at, at that point in the movie where um, Anakin has to say goodbye to his mom, and he doesn't want to. 
and she's trying to console him. And as I'm sitting right next to Josiah, and we're all kind of in the living room watching this, Josiah just bawls. I mean, bawls. Can't stop crying. And uh, of course, this is so sweet to Aaron watching Josiah cry, but she takes a picture of him, and he's just crying, and she just wants to remember it for, for the rest of her life because Josiah has such a tender heart for, I think, both of her parents, but his parents, but especially his mom. And he doesn't want to leave home. Doesn't want to leave home. Doesn't want to leave home. The only thing, the only words I could console him with is, buddy, you can always live in our basement, I guess, but don't worry. We'll not, we won't kick you out. We won't kick you out. But there's something about that, right? God says in the Old Testament that he has placed eternity in our hearts. We read in Peter's writings that, that this place is not our home, that we're aliens in a foreign land. We were meant for a different place. C.S. Lewis writes that if we find in ourselves something in this world that can never satisfy, the only thing that tells us is that we were not created for this place. We were created for a different home. And what Josiah feels naturally in his tender seven-year-old heart is what the Father wants us to long for as well, that there's something that should bother us about this world that is so separated from God that he's calling lost people to himself and there will be a feast one day and that is the day that we long for and currently that we live for. Because if, if this gospel is real, it should change how we live, it should change how we love, it, was, it should change how we obey that we don't have to do it out of duty. We get to do it out of delight because our Father loves us. Amen, church? Again, we just kind of scratched the surface of this parable. I encourage you to keep reading it, study it. It's, um, it's got so much in it that you can build your Christian life off of. So I invite our worship teams to come forward at all of our locations as we um, close in prayer, and we'll continue worshiping together. Lord, thank you so much for your your grace, we see a picture of that grace, that where we deserve punishment, and if not punishment, we certainly deserve to pay back because of all the wrongs that we've done. Our sins are so numerable. And yet we see a picture, not only of your grace, but your mercy. It's more, it's more than our sin. It overwhelms our sin. So struck by this picture, Lord, in the Gospel of Luke, that before this son could ever recite his rehearsed speech about repaying you for his sins, you just welcome him back home. Before he's ever able to confess, even, and, and repent, it was your kindness that led him to that repentance. It was your embrace, it was your kiss, it was your love that was the initiating factor behind us coming to our senses, realizing our sin, and turning to you. Lord, help us keep in mind the heart of, of you as our Father. And as a result of that, I pray that as a church we would be holy, seeking you for who you truly are and obeying you because we delight in you love you, we want to serve you, we want to make much of you. 
Help us do that. We, we can only do that by your grace. And it's in Jesus' name we ask this.